welcome to another edition of the Health Nuts podcast with certified holistic nutrition consultants, Mary Vance and Caitlin Weeks. Our goal is to dispel mainstream nutrition myths and bring you the best in holistic health and real food education. So today I'm very excited because we have another awesome guest, a longtime friend and mentor and all-around good guy, Dr. Daniel Kalish. Hey, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, we are really excited. We were talking all about female hormones and hormone balance, women's health today. So we will launch into our content here shortly. But before we get into that, Caitlin is going to read our standard disclaimer and make some announcements. The only purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is no substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss with your licensed health care provider any of your issues. Caitlin Weeks and Mary Vance assume no liability for your activities in connection with this podcast. Well, hey, Caitlin, what's up? How are you? I'm good. What's new on your blog? I uh, put a blog post about how people are always complaining about your their gelatin, their broth, not not gelling. So I said seven tips that can help them get their broth to gel. And then I am doing an Against All Grain giveaway. Uh, the book from Danielle Walker is coming out this today, actually, and I'm going to her book signing on Saturday. So I did a giveaway of her book and also Beyond Bacon. So somebody will win that. And then yesterday, I think I did a maca hormone balancing smoothie. Oh, excellent. <laughs> So yeah, everyone can find that at Grassfed Girl. Um, and typically, I just add chicken heads and feet to my broth to get it to gel, which is disconcerting because the beaks peck you when you take it out of the package. But okay. <laughs> don't give away the secrets, Mary. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Go to grassfedgirl.com and figure out how to uh, stuff your chicken heads in your crock pot. Um, it's really so hard. It's really on, my, hard. on my site, maryvancenc.com. Uh, if you haven't been there lately, I just got my site redesigned, which is very exciting. And I put my ebook up there, Three Weeks to Vitality. So everybody go check that out. Um, and I, I have a couple posts on, uh, what's the latest one I did on what to eat? Eat this and not that for breakfast. Everyone's always asking me what to eat for breakfast. So go find out why skim milk and kashi is the worst breakfast you can eat. So let's get into what we're talking about today. Do you have any other announcements, Caitlin? No, I don't. I can't think of anything right now. Okay, good. Because I want to introduce Dan, uh, functional medicine pioneer. Dan Kalish is here with us. And he's also a teacher, clinician, and author. And he runs a busy, successful phone practice and has developed his own clinical model of functional medicine that he now teaches healthcare practitioners. And he focuses on adrenal and female hormone balance, GI health and wellness, detox support, and also balancing brain chemistry in his practice. And Dan, you've spent time in Zen monasteries in Japan and Thailand and directed your own clinic. And now you have a busy practice and you've written two books, one on hormones and brain chemistry. So is there anything you haven't done? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I have... Um maybe aspirations for space travel later in my life. <laughs> I'm sure you could make it happen, knowing yeah. your success. But um, thanks for being on our show, Dan. We're really excited. We have good content and 
talking about female hormone balance and women's health is one of my favorite topics. But just to get started, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what functional medicine is and what your practice is about? Yeah, so functional medicine is, is based on the idea that problems happen in the human body that we can detect long before diseases show up. So, you know, before a woman has a fertility problem or migraine headaches from her cycle, there's going to be a predictable pattern of uh, degradation, you know, in the hormonal system. And that, you know, we can detect these problems early on with functional medicine. And the, the whole name says it all, I guess, is that, you know, we're looking at organ dysfunction prior to the onset of an actual disease process. And the earlier that we catch these problems, the better. And female hormones are kind of the best example, I think, of a system that's highly reactive to different kinds of stresses that are placed on the body that will crash pretty easily um, that can be corrected with natural protocols. I mean, really, uh, the conventional medical protocols for female hormone treatment are pretty dismal and actually downright dangerous. So um, it's kind of a area I think that women have turned to for health needs uh, because they've really lost faith in the conventional approach, which has proved to be um, a little bit of a scam after all those years of using hormone replacement therapy and birth control, you know? Yeah, I know. It is scary. So why do you think we're currently seeing so many hormone issues in younger women? I mean, I know that you frequently talk about seeing hormone levels in women in their 20s and late teens that you would see in postmenopausal women. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? We have these 15 to 25-year-old women who have hormone output like an 85-year-old. So I think there's a couple of things. I think number one is the environment is becoming more toxic and part of the problem with toxins is that they're endocrine disruptors, you know, they can interfere with the hormonal systems. And clearly we have, you know, crazy things like we put hormones in our food that we eat and, uh, you know, there's xenoestrogens in the environment from the manufacturing and production of all kinds of plastics and whatnot. So there's no kind of obvious environmental toxicity issues. I think that's part of it, a big part of it. And I think the other big part uh, is just the amount of stress that uh, girls and women are under to achieve, you know, and that we have, what I see in my practice at least is in general, extremely intelligent, sophisticated, well-educated high school to 50-year-old women who are, um, ex- you know, exceeding their male counterparts in terms of achievements and business achievements and jobs and academic achievements and professional achievements, whether they're a ballerina or whether they're, you know, like a stockbroker. And I think when women achieve to that level and overachieve even beyond what men are doing typically, you know, they pay a price on the hormones because the amount of stress that they're under to make all these things happen um, doesn't suit, you know, the female hormone system very well and women crash. It's a delicate system. It's a more delicate and well-balanced system than the male has, right? And it's more susceptible to these kind of stresses that we're putting it under now. Yeah, I was going to say, so just with the female endocrine system isn't suited enough or suited well enough to adapt to that, the, just the type of stressors that women are exposed to these days, huh? No, I don't think so. You know, you think about, and we're talking about not just regular achieving, but like overachieving, trying to get into good colleges and, you know, girls who are like 12 years old and they're, they're doing violin lessons and they're at swim class and they're trying to do all their homework and then they hit high school and they, you know, are just overwrought and then the dietary stuff and all the body image part that comes in to do with compulsive eating and eating disorders and just the emotional pressures I think are pretty intense um, and at least we see that represented in the hormone labs there's something that's burning through all these hormones for women and 
Um, it's getting worse. You know, I've only been in practice for 20 years, but you can really clearly see the difference in the current patients that we're t- testing versus the labs that we used to see 20 years ago. So, mm-hmm. so what are some of the signs of hormone imbalance? Uh, depending on the age, you know, so maybe we start with younger girls going up to menopausal women. So I would say in the teenage years, it's things as simple as like acne and sugar cravings, uh, chocolate cravings. Um, a lot of it seems to center around compulsive overeating type behaviors. Um, also, you know, having your period late or having problems with having a regular cycle all the time, erratic cycles. Uh, excessive bleeding or complete lack of bleeding with the menstrual cycle, you know, those are kind of classic. And then when women are in their 20s and 30s, usually they're complaining about things like fertility problems, they're wanting to get pregnant and can't, or they may have just, you know, migraine headaches that are related to their cycle. Weight gain is almost always a component across the board because when the female hormone system is falling apart, usually the fat-burning hormones aren't doing very, very well either, and so there's usually some issue with excess body fat. And then when women come up into their mid-40s, early 50s, it usually shifts into hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, irritability, vaginal dryness. And then across the whole spectrum, and this is kind of amazing to me, but from 20-year-olds to 65-year-olds, blanket, 100% of the women that I've worked with this year um, complain about low sex drive, no matter how old they are. Mm. It's like the most common complaint. If you really get in and ask people, how's your sex drive? How often are you having sex with your boyfriend or husband? You know, it's from zero to I do it when I have to. But really just, <laughs> you know, it's, that's like, to me, it seems like a crisis, you know, for a 20 or 25-year-old to have no interest in sex. It seems a little strange. No, I see the same thing. And I wonder, too, because I frequently tell women that I work with that they – you know, you, you talked about some of the more obvious symptoms associated with endocrine imbalance, but what about those you wouldn't normally think would apply, like gut issues, for example? Yeah, so then there's there's an extension of all this. So there's just, like you mentioned, there's the obvious, like we just talked about, where it's clearly a hormonal system, and you can look it up in the book or online or something, and you see that it's hormone-related. But then the, um, the sort of subtext that we see from a clinical perspective which is not something that people walk in knowing about, is that there's this like deep interconnection between the hormonal system and the digestive system. And if you could magically line up like every single female hormone lab I've done in the last couple years and lay that down right next to all the uh, digestive tests that I've done, you'd see a direct parallel in that the more damaged and symptomatic the female hormones have become, the more problems the woman's going to have with her digestive tract. And there's a link between these which makes this sort of clear, which is the hormone cortisol, right? So when we're under stress, cortisol levels go up and that drops the female hormone levels down. And one of the major stresses that we see on cortisol comes from inflammation and damage that's happening in the digestive tract. So if you have a lot of digestive problems, your cortisol goes up and your sex hormone levels drop. And then it works in the converse as well, right? So if your your cortisol regulates the health of the lining of the digestive tract, So if you're under a lot of emotional stress and your cortisol shoots up, the health of the lining of the digestive tract deteriorates and people develop what we call leaky gut, which makes them susceptible to food problems, food reactions like gluten intolerance or sugar cravings and food allergies, and also makes them prone to picking up infections. So cortisol is the mediator between 
these chronic gut problems and chronic female hormone problems. And you really should see, and almost everybody, the more messed up your female hormones are, the more likely it is you have a digestive tract problem. So when you see women that come in, you know, complaining of GI issues, do you typically start with treating the, the main concern, which to them might be their GI issues or bloating or what they see as, you know, debilitating gut issues, or do you start off treating what you think is a female hormone issue? Well, we always start all the GI treatments, whether whatever the problem is with the digestion, start with an adrenal hormone program for balancing cortisol. And then we usually include in that the female hormone correction. And then once that system's up and running for a month or two properly, then we start to correct the digestive problems next. So what uh, are some of the... So it sounds like these kind of problems can be there all the time from when you're a young girl or me and Mary, and so what are the causes of some of the PMS symptoms? Well, I'd say the number one cause would be emotional stress, and that could be your parents are getting divorced, or you're overworking, or you're not taking enough breaks, or you're over-exercising, or you're eating too much sugar, or too much diet soda, or whatever it could be, you know. Um, the second, this is in the order in which they're the most common, so... Um, you know, some kind of emotional stress is driving a person. There could be some kind of dietary stress, or there could be some kind of pain or inflammatory stress. Those are the three biggies. Emotional, dietary, and inflammatory stresses that accumulate over time. And, you know, I, I do, you did mention, just backing up one second, you mentioned um, eating disorders and disordered eating. And mm -hmm. I wonder how that, obviously, you know, there's a lot of social pressure on women, and I think that's a, a huge problem, and some women aren't willing to admit. But how does disordered eating kind of tie into this adrenal stress and GI issue cycle? So... Depending on how you define it, you know, probably the majority of people in this country have some kind of a problem with their food, right? Because most of us are overweight. So the, I, I think there's, there's a, it can work in either direction, right? So when you're under stress and your hormonal system has crashed, your relationship to food is going to change. And you're going to need to eat a fair amount of carbohydrates in the form of starches or sugars just to function properly. Mm. And so you get addicted to, whether it's you know, Oreo cookies or ice cream or bread or pasta or whatever it is. And that, of course, further dysregulates the hormones, so you end up on a kind of you know, negative cycle there. Um, and then if the emotional, uh, then there's another variable, which is this is the most kind of hidden one. I should probably talk about the ones people don't think about that are obvious. The most hidden, the most the most common hidden source of the eating disorder related problem is that a person's eating foods that they're reacting to poorly. Mm. So the classic example is gluten intolerance. So you eat gluten, you release all these gluteomorphine chemicals in the brain, and it gets it gets you high. You know, you basically get a little buzz from it. So you can't stop eating just a piece of bread. You end up eating a loaf of bread because you're getting and a, a mild opiate release of these gluteomorphin chemicals in the brain from eating gluten. And dairy provides the same kind of benefit for some people. There's caseomorphines, which are you know, morphine-like compounds that are released when we eat dairy. And so you can get really addicted to foods that you're reacting to. And then the foods, unfortunately, trigger a lot of inflammatory reactions 
which sets off your cortisol, and then all of a sudden you're kind of eating your way into a hormone imbalance. But you're not able to stop because it's a compulsive eating problem that you just can't you know, put down the bag of chips or the ice cream or whatever it is that you're addicted to. Yeah, I mean, I spend so much time telling women it's not really a case of willpower when it comes to that. There's this physiological underlying allergy addiction component, and then you get into the low brain chemicals like low serotonin and low dopamine, and it, 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 you really can't use willpower in order to overcome that. Yeah, yeah it's impossible. I saw you talk about that at Paleo FX in 2012. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All about the brain chemicals. Um, so you're talking a little bit about what are the what is getting on a good adrenal protocol. What kind of testing do you recommend for that? Yeah. So the the state of the art for this is to do a salivary test, and you do four saliva samples in a day that measures your cortisol and DHEA levels. And there's a real mix of quality of lab companies out there. So you want to make sure that you're working with someone who knows how to get the better quality uh, lab testing done. Um, The conventional medical doctors do blood tests for cortisol, and those are used to detect relatively rare endocrine disorders like Addison's disease. So the medical testing is quite different. They're not looking for the functional problem. They're looking for a disease process, which would really only be something that you'd look for if you were seeing an endocrinologist and were quite sick. Um, The testing that we're doing is different in that we're looking for functional problems where there's no disease process present and we're just you know, basically trying to assess a problem with the adrenal glands before it turns into something that's more serious. And then you said you, usually there's a gut component that goes along with it, so what, what testing do you recommend for that? Yeah, nobody likes these, but we do, a lot of, <laughs> we do a lot of stool testing, right? And basically we're looking for parasites, bacteria, and yeast. It's really the most important part of the protocols usually is to find if there are, are any digestive tract infections. There are also tests for food reactions and food allergies and food intolerances that we sometimes do. Those are a little more complicated and problematic, but we almost always check people for pathogens or infections of the gut. Yeah, the, that I guess the gold standard is really the BioHealth Lab, which is the four-day sample, which nobody likes to do, but it is <laughs> accurate. It does find a lot of stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, so also one thing I wanted to ask is, you know, I, I feel like there's in women that are coming in with infertility issues, and that is really increasing, and there's so many different reasons for that, but... I mean, is your kind of protocol the same for treating infertility, or is there something different that you would recommend for someone who's struggling with infertility? Yeah, well, I think with infertility, the stakes are higher, and people are more motivated to make things happen. As a matter of fact, I just got off of, I just did a consult today with a couple that's trying to been trying to get pregnant for two and a half years, and so mm-hmm. it's actually easier than any other kind of case usually because. Um, they're used to spending 30, 40, 50 grand for other fertility treatments, so they're not worried about money. And they're usually in a rush and highly motivated and basically do just about anything you tell them to do. Yeah. Um, so it's actually easier usually in a way to work with people that want to get pregnant because the motivation is so high. The protocols, I think on my side, the stakes are higher because having a baby is a really big deal. And you want to make sure that you know that can happen for couples that want it to happen. So um, I feel like it's a little more, I have to be kind of extra on the ball. 
in terms of working with people and make sure that we do all the testing right away. And so we don't mess around and we, we then always do what we talked about already, which would be an adrenal panel and all the digestive panels available, nutritional screening tests, and then the sort of Cadillac version of all this for women who want to get pregnant is a month-long female hormone panel. Where And you've been checking those out, Mary, with the training program, right? We saw some oh, yeah. today. So these month-long tests are amazing. Uh, most conventional doctors are, are just not aware of them and don't do them. But you do a saliva sample every other day for a month, and it maps out your progesterone and estrogen levels for that whole cycle. And then based on that, and we saw a couple of these in this morning in the training program. Mary was in on the call. Um, you can see, like, literally to the day when the female hormone levels are dropping, which hormone is dropping, and then how you're going to correct that. And so it gives you an insight into a fertility problem that is pretty profound. Yeah, that, that test is really cool. I mean, I've done it myself, and I've been looking at those tests for six or seven years, but it really charts out exactly what your estrogen and progesterone does over the course of a month. And it's pretty fascinating because, you know, typically women are told they're ovulating, you know, around day 14. And if someone is ovulating early or late, then, you, you know, you can actually co correct that through using these targeted therapies and, you know, basically override and normalize someone's cycle that way. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool stuff. It is. It works amazingly well. And then what, what do you run for... Uh, menopausal women or premenopausal women, which test? So for menopausal women, you know, usually they're starting to come out of the time of their life where they're cycling monthly, and so we can usually get away with a single sample test, which is easier to perform, and that's going to measure progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, melatonin, and of course we always do cortisol and DHEA as part of that. And once you see all those hormones laid out, then you can set up a protocol that's going to start to balance that whole system as an integrated unit. So um, that sounds great. What What are some of the lifestyle adjustments that people can do, like without besides testing? I know sometimes, you know, a lot of this testing can get really expensive. Is there things that people can do on their own without testing, and you know, maybe before they while they're saving up for it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, there's kind of, uh, I would say, four obvious lifestyle changes people can work on. Um, maybe in the order of importance would be you know, changing their diet. And there's a gazillion versions of that, depending on the person's background and what their goals are and what they need to do with their food. But that's always you know, a starting point for most people. And then dealing with exercise, not too much, not too little, You know, figuring out how that's going to work for you. That's always a bit complex. Um, reducing your stress in your life, and that might mean any one of a million things. It might mean you know leaving your phone at home when you go out during the day so that you're not like checking your Facebook and email and text things all at the same time <laughs> every minute. Um, you know whatever whatever we need to do to sort of de-stress and deprogram now, get out in nature and all that stuff. What they call it, na uh, nature deficit disorder. I love that. Uh, <laughs> I like that too. Right, just go out in the woods, take off your shoes, and walk around for an hour without your phone. You know not too hard to de-stress and then um, you know sleep patterns and making sure that people are getting the right kind of sleep at the right time and going to bed on time and and that kind of stuff you know in bed by 10 p.m. and that's usually a revelation to most people that they could actually solve their fatigue problem by going to bed early you know do you ever see like have you ever seen people 
who maybe just didn't didn't have the resources to do all this testing heal you know on their own maybe just from lifestyle yeah it depends on how messed up you are you know if people <laughs> are just in that kind of medium messed up category then three or four months of lifestyle changes and they'll start to feel better if you've been doing all the lifestyle changes for more than let's say six months and it's not working then it's probably going to be a situation where you need to see some kind of practitioner um, just depends on how long the problems have been there and how extensive they are yeah and you know speaking of lifestyle one thing I always like to include I mean this being a whole holistic model is it's not necessarily just lifestyle and diet and you know the physiological fixes but what about someone's emotional and spiritual health and how does that play into this process well that's the most important thing right so of the three stresses on the hormones we have emotional dietary and inflammatory that's in the order of importance right so the biggest impact on the hormonal system comes from the emotional stresses that we're under and you know I don't know if you even know what emotional stress really means, but you know, people who, you know, all of us who have, um, you know, emotional and spiritual disconnection, I think is kind of it. You know, people who are in situations which are not tenable, where, um, like I had a patient just an hour ago, okay, this is amazing. So he's going through a horrible divorce. His son has Down syndrome, who he's taking care of. His father just died, and he's running this massive business. Uh -huh. So he's, he's just like, everything in his life has kind of fallen apart, and he's under stress every moment, you know, and, if if you're in a situation like that where you have a lot of ongoing stress, to try to figure out how you're going to get emotionally and spiritually reconnected is kind of the most important part of all this. Mm. And that's the that's the um, what do we call it? Like a mission statement for my practice is emotion. Uh, what is it? Um, physical health is our platform for emotional and spiritual growth. So that you know it's hard for people to make the emotional and spiritual growth experiences happen when they're just waking up every day and eating sugar all the time and are exhausted you know so if we can get the physical health piece going then the real project is for people to work on the emotional and spiritual piece which is what we're here for on this planet right that's really what we're not here to take a bunch of supplements and do lab testing it's <laughs> a higher there's a higher purpose <laughs> I always have a hard time getting my clients to I, I always tell them about meditation and, and stuff but what do you say to people to get them to do that, um, I just scare the shit out of people, basically, <laughs> to get, to motivate them. I think, in a nice so, way. <laughs> yeah, in a really nice way. I'm a pretty nice guy overall. So, like, for example, I had a patient today, and um, her main concern is taking care of her son, and so her main motivation is that um, she wants to be healthy so she can take care of her son, who's autistic, and you know she'll probably be taking care of him the rest of her natural life. You know, so so like a big project for her. Um, and so that's the motivation and that's what we want to look towards, you know, because we all, you know, are, are motivated by fear, right? And, you know, if we're afraid of something, we're going to want to change things. So if fear is that sort of catalyst, fear of death or fear of not being able to take care of someone you love or whatever the fear is, that's the motivator that gets you going. We don't want people to have fear-based thinking, but everyone needs a little shot to get themselves motivated and up and running. And then once people start doing these things, they have their, it has their own momentum, right? Um, but I found that if people don't have a reason to make a major lifestyle change, like, for example, reconnecting with their spiritual life, 
um, there needs to be a motivation. I, for most human beings, it seems fear of death is the main motivation <laughs> that you know that makes us look at that. Um, and if people can start to wrap their minds around that and uh, come to terms with what their own death means, and you know, having seen other people die and that sort of thing, you know, it really is. Um, I think that's the main motivator for most of us to understand the spiritual world better. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. That's a really good assessment, I think, too. We talked about this morning, didn't we, on the call? Because we had. Um, yeah, and then I turned around. I had a call right after our clinical rounds review this morning, and then I turned right around and relayed that to the person that I was on the phone with. And I thought that that's kind of how the cycle of life works in this way. Is I heard you say that, and it was really kind of inspiring. And the person that I was talking to on the phone is a woman who, you know, is going through kind of a crisis and having major female hormone imbalance as a result. And you know, we had a very con- candid conversation about how you have to go through the grief process, and we're kind of taught in this society to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and keep going when we're, you know, facing. Oh, it's my office phone. When we're facing these moments of crisis, but we have to really kind of let ourselves grieve in order to heal and move on. And that's kind of what the whole emotional and spiritual well-being, you know, what, that's what it means, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line in all this. And I think that all the good healers that I've ever met, and I think all the good healers for all of human history, um, have you know, confronted their own death have come to grips with what that means for them and are not living in fear of dying every day. And so they're, ironically, <laughs> they seem to not go out and party and do a bunch of cocaine and drink a lot, right? They devote themselves <laughs> to helping other people and they generally maintain an extremely healthy lifestyle because they want to be around for a long time in, in, in such a way that they can help others understand the same realizations that they've had. And um, I mean, you don't have to look far, right? Anyone from Jesus Christ to Buddha... You know, this is like sort of the theme for all the great healers throughout human history that really kind of impacted our cultures. So, we're going to get into some reader questions in a second here, too. But what would you say are tips, you know, women could start right away that are struggling right now? With the female hormone problems? Yeah. Um, Okay, put down the glass of wine. It's in your hand right now, number one. So you got to stop all the alcohol and sugars. And if you can't figure that out, then you need some help, whether it's AA or a counselor or a friend or a nutritionist or whatever it is. So, you know, getting the – that's like the single most important immediate thing I think you could do that's usually mm. impa- impactful. Like within a week or two, people feel that difference. On the, yeah. Um, and probably – I'm not listing them in the order in which they're easy, but maybe in the order in which they're most impactful. Um Get rid of the boyfriend or husband or find one or if you like the one you have and it's not working well, then go to a counselor or a couples counselor or just you know, work on the relationship so you can make it a healthy, supportive experience and not something that's dragging you down. Mm. I can't tell you how many women I work with that are in bad relationships for 10, 20, 30 years you know, before they finally kind of come to terms with that. Um, so the priority is always on making the relationship better if you can and if it's not going to work, then you know, figuring out what you're strategies for getting yourself healthy in context in the context of sexual relationships and and romantic stuff um and then probably and we're thinking about things you can do on your own right without you don't need a lot of advice to dump the old boyfriend right uh or a lot of like you know doctor support <laughs> to dump the boyfriend um 
uh, I'm thinking my, what would be my, probably the third one, and this is again not in the order of popularity, would be to just work out like crazy. Like we're all so sedentary, and we all need to be working out. I mean, you don't want to be running a triathlon every weekend, but you know, really everyone needs to be physically active and moving around an hour or two a day. And whether that's you know you walking your dog or whether you're in the gym doing CrossFit or Pilates or whatever, you know, f- being physically active and moving an hour or two every day. Um, if you're sedentary in a bad relationship and eating tons of sugar <laughs> all at the same time, you know, that's just your hormones are just never going to recover. Hmm. Do you think people can make up like you know how some people are into these short, intense workouts? Do you think they still need to be doing an hour of exercise a day? Uh, the short, intense workouts, that's kind of like a cultural phenomenon, isn't it? You know, where if you only have like 12 minutes, you still want to, yeah, I mean, it has a physiological effect, which is really profound and it changes all the growth hormone stuff and testosterone. I understand all that. Um, I think it's great and I like to do it myself once in a while, but, um, that's, that's, if you're working 23 hours a day and doing it, you know, like a 12 minute workout, that's not going to really be conducive. So if you are doing those kind of workouts, which are great, whether it's interval training or the new kind of, you know, perform to your maximum capacity. And then the one that I I started doing the other day with one of the trainers I work with is like a 12 second workout, like literally. He's like, if you can do this for more than 10 or 12 seconds, you're not doing it right. Um, And so that high kind of high intensity working (laughs) out is great. But um, that doesn't mean you still also need to be physically active for an hour or two a day, right? That's not a substitute for it. Definitely not sitting for 23 hours, right? That's why I have my janky treadmill desk, which means that I have books on the island in my kitchen and I march in place all day while I'm at my computer. And you don't walk, yeah. Um, I walk a lot, but most of it happens to be in place standing there. Well, you have dogs, right? My makeshift treadmill desk. I have a rowing machine. I love my rowing machine. It's great. Oh, I love rowing. Yeah, a rowing machine is awesome because you can talk on the phone and row. Yeah, no, I know. I I pace around at my makeshift treadmill desk too. Yes. So, um, uh, reader questions. I have a couple that came in. Caitlin, do you want to uh, ask? Why don't we just alternate until <laughs> t- we run out of time? So, you want to go first? All right. This question is coming from Lisa. She says. I have PCOS and have been through the gamut of testing with different practitioners and have changed my diet and I still don't see the results that I was hoping. What do you recommend for addressing PCOS? Oh, so PCOS, uh, it's an interesting problem, isn't it? So yeah, um, it's almost always related to the adrenal issue that we talked about already. Cortisol levels are off progesterone levels drop, and then the symptoms of PCOS start. So it's very much amenable to a well-designed program based on the, what we talked about earlier with a month-long female hormone lab. You see exactly where the progesterone levels are and start to fix them. And you know the, the, the call that Mary and I did this morning, we had a couple of labs where the total production of progesterone for a month was like 800. And um, again, that would be like your level that of your you know 85 year old grandmothers. So when women have really low progesterone like that, it's very easy for problems like PCOS to start to develop. Okay, so the next one we have is from Joy, and she 
wants to know your opinion about needing higher carbs for thyroid health. And she's heard that many people struggle being too low carb. Oh, that's a good one. Actually, I get a lot of questions about that. Um, oh boy, boy, this is like, uh, I don't, you guys are probably too young. Do you ever see the movie Sleeper by Woody Allen? Uh, but they, it was a, it's a really great movie. It's probably on Netflix. But in Sleeper, it was one of Woody Allen's old old movies. But he wakes up in the future. It takes he you know he filmed it in the nineteen seventies, which was when I was a kid. And he wakes up in the future. And you got to remember, in the seventies, everyone was low fat, right? Like if you were when people when a hundred percent of the people that I met in the late seventies and eighties when they found out I was a health nut. 100% of them assumed I was a vegetarian. That's what oh, just that still thought. happens to me today. <laughs> right? So low fat, no meat, all this kind of stuff. He wakes up in the future and they find that like steak and a sour cream are like the healthiest foods <laughs> imaginable. It's like this like nightmare for the 70s people. But you know, we kind of human beings very consistently and and to my uh, entertainment, you know, funnily, massively overcorrect with their diet. So, and we do this as a culture to a point where once you've seen a few of these corrections, it gets to be comical. So, you know, the 70s was about high, high carb, high grain, no fat, right? We're in an era now with the paleo diets that's the complete polar opposite of that, right? Very high protein, very high fat, and extremely low starchy carb. And the, the problem is it really depends. Mm. Right. It depends on the person, yeah, and it depends on the person's health, and it depends on the person's goals. If you want to lift a lot of weight and lay down a bunch of muscle tissue, there's certainly diets that are specific that will help that happen. If you're trying to recover from a tumor the size of a grapefruit in your throat, you know there's completely different kind of diets that are going to help. Whether you're a man or a woman, your age, your physical activity mm-hmm. level, and how sick you are, are all these different variables that are going to determine What's the balance of protein, fat, and carb that you need? And so now, depending on what you know, diet people are falling into, some people are adopting a more Atkins paleo type diet with excessive dietary protein and not enough carb. It all is relev- it all revolves around the amount of physical activity that they're going through, right? Hmm. So you're not gonna be able to ride a bike in the Tour de France on an all protein diet, right? If you're doing that many calories a day, you know, you're, you're on a bike professionally five or eight hours a day, whatever these guys do, you know, you're going to need some starchy carbs or you're just going to die, right? If you're trying to lift 500 pounds in the gym, completely different kind of structure is required. So it, it could vary based on athletic goals, on body type. You know, it's a big moving target. But there, you can, you can go too low in starchy carbs. I've seen people do that. It's much easier to go too high in starchy carbs and more common. Yeah, I mean, for like a woman who maybe has a desk job and, you know, maybe semi-active but not too much, that would Yeah, be- there's a really easy test for this, right, which you could do for free at home, oh, which is if you, if you think that you're – well, you could send me a check for like $20 just for telling you, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not going to cost you anything outside of the check, all right? Um or cash, cash would be better. But you, you have all you have to do if you if you think you might if you suspect you might be low carb, go out buy a rice cooker, cook some brown rice, and measure like a quarter cup of it that's already cooked, 
and eat a quarter cup of brown rice in the morning. And if you're really bold, you could have maybe another quarter cup like with lunch or dinner. If rice is good because not too many people are allergic to rice, you could do white rice if you don't like brown rice. It doesn't really matter. But just do it with rice because it's a it's the least allergenic of all the grains. If that gives you a ton of energy and improves your ability to sleep when you eat it at night and just makes you jazzed up and feel great, then you probably were running too low in carb. All right? And if a quarter cup isn't enough, you could try a half cup or a cup. But try to measure it so you're getting a really discreet and reproducible amount of carbohydrate. And... If you get energized by it, then you probably were running low prior to that. And then just be careful about how much you reintroduce because you don't want to go overboard and it's easy to go overboard. That's exactly what I tell. That's my, my carb tolerance test. Because I Is get, it? Oh, good. Yeah, I get a lot of people who are really married to a paleo plan and I'm in full support of it, especially if you have gut issues. But I sometimes they're really literally not eating any starchy carbs and they add in starchy carbs and they still feel shaky or they don't feel right. And if they add in a little, I have them do exactly what you said and, and it oftentimes works. So I, I think sometimes, you know, people get really carried away with doing zero carb paleo and it can actually kind of swing the pendulum in the opposite direction and, and lead to some other issues. Yeah, when I was, when I, and it's, it depends on, a lot of this revolves around your metabolic type and nutritional type, or yeah. call it, right? When I was on, and if you're, I'm a certain, we're not, we don't have time to talk about metabolic typing in detail, but there's many different types of metabolism, and there's certain protein, fat, and carb ratios that are different for different people. And when I was on, this was a while ago, this is, oh, I was still married, it's probably like 10 or 12 years ago. When I was on a spe- this one specific diet where I was eating, this is crazy, I was eating some raw meat. Zero carbohydrate and a lot of vegetables and a lot of vegetable juice, and it was like mostly raw. I remember that when you were doing actually. Yeah, my my (laughs) wife at the time really—I'm not kidding. She really seriously thought I had a cocaine problem. (laughs) Not like joking. I mean, she like was like ready to call you know the narc squad in or something because I was like so bouncing off the walls with energy all the time that I was acting like a crazy person. And I talked to my nutritionist, this lovely woman named Dodie Anderson. I was like, what's going on, Dodie? And she's like, Dan, just add in a little bit of fat. And I added in a little bit of fat, and it just totally mellowed me out. So you can get onto an extreme diet, which looks and feels really healthy to you, and those around you who care about you may just think, wow, you're going crazy. You just got to calm your little ass down here and get off the vegetable juice and, you know, eat a little piece of steak or whatever it was, you know, in terms of needing a little bit more fat. So we're not always the best judges of our own diets. It's, it's, you know, don't, we can't always tell exactly how we're being impacted by our food. Just ask those people who live with you. <laughs> exactly. If you trust them. Now, if they're out to get you, then you're in trouble. <laughs> the moral of the story is you didn't get shipped off to rehab, so that's good. That's right. All I had to do was add some coconut oil and everything was okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it cures everything, right? Yeah. So, but the other side of that would be if you got, if you added that little quarter cup of rice or so, and then you got really, really hungry, then you would know that would, before your next meal, then you would know that probably was too much for you, right? Yeah, so if you eat the rice and you get hungry or tired or grumpy or irritable or get a headache or get spacey or dizzy. Yeah, exactly. um, The tricky part is, if all that happens within a few hours, it's kind of easy to tell. But a lot of times there's a delay. So like for a lot of people, if they eat the wrong amount of carbohydrate for breakfast, they're going to notice it because they're not going to sleep well that evening. 
So you have to track the whole 24-hour rhythm and, and look at how did that carb that I ate for breakfast impact my sleep that night and was it really something that helped or not. Good advice. Do you have another one, Mary, or do you want me to go ahead? No, go ahead. Okay, so the next one we have is from April. She also has a question about PCOS and using progesterone cream and how it links with diet and thyroid health. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so a progesterone cream is a tricky one. So... We are pro-progesterone because a lot of women need it, and most women are low in progesterone. However, the progesterone creams are dangerous. You can transfer the cream to another person. So uh, this could happen, and I've seen it happen frequently in two different ways. So a woman rubs a cream on her body, and then she sleeps with somebody, and they touch skin, you know, either they're having sex or even just hugging or whatever. She's just touching her partner, and the cream, the progesterone in the cream will transfer to the other person. So we have a whole long long list of uh, husbands of uh, progesterone cream women in my practice and a series of doctors in the training program also who uh, who were women who were doctors who were using progesterone cream and we tested their husbands and found them to be extremely high. So you have to be careful because you can transfer it. The other even more dangerous thing, if for example you don't care about men at all and you can feel like they're disposable and they should have more progesterone, maybe they'll chill their asses out. The other, the other possibility is that with a baby, right? So we've had this happen a couple times in the class as well where we test a two-year-old child and this little girl is like sky high on her progesterone. Wow. Grandma, grandma came to visit Grandma came to visit her kids in Florida. She's taking care of the baby every day. Of course, she's picking the thing up because that's why she's in Florida to visit the grandkids. And all of a sudden, the Dilla two-year-old has picked up grandma's progesterone cream through her hands, right? She rubs the cream on her chest in the morning. She goes and picks up the baby. And you got a two-year-old who's toxic in progesterone. So we've seen that as well. Now, if you're single and you're not touching other human beings at all, you know, you can use progesterone cream, and it's a little hard to dose properly. Um, uh, it's even there's even another thing. Even if you are single and you don't ever touch anyone, ever, and um, you use a progesterone cream, they can the, the creams can build up in the skin to toxic levels. Um, so we see that frequently as well. So it's really hard to get progesterone creams right. The the group that I've seen that work the best with progesterone cream are women who are like say 70 to 80 plus years of age. And, um, you know, as long as we test them once or twice a year, they seem to do pretty well with progesterone cream. But if you're under age 70 or if you're touching other human beings, then the creams are a really dangerous delivery system. And you can just substitute. There's a liquid progesterone that's in a drop form. It has all the advantages of the creams without the downsides of the transferring problem. Great. So the next one is about... T3. So this lady named Therese knows her T3 is low and she wants to know what kind of doctor she should see. An endocrinologist or an integrative medicine doctor? For thyroid? Well, I would always start, you know, with the least dramatic treatment and then escalate if you need to. So um, with thyroid-related problems, you know, try a natural health person that does functional medicine first. The majority of time with most thyroid problems, we can get the thyroid stable with a good cortisol-oriented program. Maybe one or two out of 20 people need to escalate 
and, and take actual thyroid hormones or some direct support for their thyroid gland. So there's non-thyroid, you know, there's non-hormone treatments for the thyroid that can be pretty effective um, and certainly is something you want to try first for maybe six months. And if you're in a category of what we call primary thyroid, which is relatively rare, which means that the thyroid gland is actually really significantly failed and the only solution is to take thyroid hormones, then you have to get those in general by prescription and you'll probably be on those for the rest of your life. So it's a pretty important decision. Most thyroid problems are generated because people are under stress and their diets aren't great and this kind of thing. And so a natural program usually can fix the thyroid problem if you catch it early enough. And also we have another one about, this one's about reverse T3. So Jen says, how would Dr. Kalish suggest reducing reverse T3 naturally if possible? Also, how to get more T3 without overdoing it. With reverse T3, you do everything that I just said, <laughs> except for the doctor and the patient have to stand on their heads the whole time. <laughs> then it, no, that's, that's not true. Um, that, uh, someone's going to email me and say that they tried to stand their head to, and the reverse T3 didn't get better. That was a bad joke. Um, it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. So um, whether it's T3 or T4, most thyroid problems are coming because of all the stuff that we're talking about. Bad food, bad boyfriends, emotional stress, toxic you know, environment, etc. So usually the thyroid gland is responding to one of these variables. And if you can correct the hormonal system as a whole, female hormones, adrenal hormones, clean up the diet and exercise patterns and all the stuff that we're talking about, emotional health, spiritual health, usually you can stabilize thyroid problems without having to use thyroid hormones. Um, and again, it's a lifelong decision, right? If you start taking thyroid hormones by prescription, you oftentimes have to be on them the rest of your life. So if there's any way to try to reverse that and prevent it from happening um, by the lifestyle changes and other functional medicine stuff that we do, you should try. And there are also you know, direct thyroid treatments um, that are natural that don't involve drugs. You know, Iodine, people use tyrosine. Some people use kelp. Most nutritional companies have a thyroid support product that you can use that could be effective as like a first line before you would escalate to do those prescription hormones. So even in the case of Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroid? Yeah. Remember when we were doing the, the training program together? We had this about maybe six, seven years ago, and we had this one of the first doctors in my first training program. All he did, this woman came in. This is a true story. This is a great story. The woman came in, had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, he put her on a gluten-free diet and gave her an adrenal lab kit, like a good doctor, exactly like we teach in the class. She came back right at the end of the class, which was exactly six months later, and um, he had lost her as a patient. He thought that she just went away because whatever, he, she didn't like him or wasn't working or whatever. Um, she never did the adrenal test. All she did was a gluten-free diet, and she came back to tell him that um, she had completely reversed her Hashimoto's disease, and it was gone. And her... her endocrinologist was kind of confused and it was hilarious because we had this whole like 20 minute discussion in front of the class about it because this guy basically cured her Hashimoto's disease by accident all he did was hand her a gluten-free diet sheet and the fact that she didn't come back because it, it went away not because she was unhappy she didn't even do the adrenal protocol it was just a dietary change and at the end of that class I was so excited because there's like 15 doctors on the call and what a great boost to realize you can make someone's life that different just by convincing them to change their diet. <laughs> I remember that story differently. 
She, I, what I remember is she did the kit and took pregnenolone and DHEA and had a bad reaction, but kept taking it and went away and he thought she was mad. And then she came back and kind of completely reversed it by following his advice, even though he didn't hear from her. <laughs> okay. You're probably, you have a better memory than I, uh, than I do. I, I've kind of embellished on it. <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. Maybe you're right. I remember that story though. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the, the, it's, either way, it's the same. She didn't do what he told her to, except for changing her diet, and it, and it cleared up. It completely went away. So who knows what's out there? You know, you never know what's going to affect what. And um, no, certainly, you know, you don't. You know, the, most of these hormonal conditions that we're talking about are are the response to, you know, the crazy pressures and the poor diets that we put ourselves through. You know, they're they're not. The thyroid gland and the ovaries and the adrenal glands, they haven't all of a sudden changed in the last 20 years in terms of how well they perform. You know, they're trying to deal with what we're throwing at them and we're throwing too much stuff at them. And that's kind of like the take-home lesson. Yeah, that's a good bottom line for sure. Well, we have time for one more, right, Caitlin? Yeah. Um, well, I, we always get asked about probiotics and what what do you think about, you know, I know there's, there's, you know, you have these people and they probably have some underlying gut pathogen, but then they're throwing in all these probiotics. And, you know, lately I've been hearing a lot about the soil-based organisms. And what do you think about adding those in? And should they do it before? Does it, after they do a parasite protocol? Or does it make any difference? <laughs> Oh, like prescriptasis. That's the one everybody loves now. Oh, yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a couple things. There's one sort of dangerous thing, and there's one sort of practical thing in all this. So the dangerous part I'll start with. If you have a significant digestive tract infection that's causing, for example, your stomach to bleed or your intestinal tract to completely erode and become damaged then you don't want to cover it up by taking a probiotic and thinking that that's the solution. So if you have a significant digestive tract problem, you should always get tested by a competent, integrative person who can tell you if you have an infection or not. So assuming that you're infection-free, you know, and that you're not about to, you know, develop some serious problem because you have an infection, then, uh, in the gut, then probiotics are essential, you know, we're supposed to get them from our food every day, but most of us don't. So taking a probiotic on a regular basis is, I don't even see it as a supplement. It's basically something you should be getting from your, from your food. And if you're not, it should just be like you're eating, a, like you're eating basically. So it's not something extra that you're supplementing. It's just something essential that we have to have every day. Um, and then, I don't know, there's a lot of different brands out there. You could argue about that all day long. But um, the idea that we need to replenish our good bacteria and that it primarily should be coming from our food supply is is pretty essential to gut health. But most people that I run into that are really dependent on probiotics are dependent on probiotics because they have a low-grade digestive tract infection that hasn't been diagnosed properly yet. That sounds great. So, Dan, tell us where what's new, like what's going on with your programs and where can people find you? Yeah, do you have yeah. a training program starting up soon? We do. We have a training program. It's kalishinstitute.com. And uh, we have, it's a great website now. It's worth checking it out. We have really great videos and all kinds of stories and protocols and stuff. But we're basically doing training programs every two months now. And um, 
we are kicking butt. We are doing extremely well. Functional medicine has become very popular, and I'm just right in the middle of all this growth, which is wonderful. We're training. I think we've got 520 doctors trained now, and we just enrolled a group of 28 a couple days ago, and we'll have another class starting in September. And basically, we're starting classes every two months now. Um, we're also creating all kinds of membership site stuff and everything like that. Um, we're also launching, I think, in about a week, um, patient education materials that are going to be at the Kalish Institute. Um, thanks to my buddy, Dr. Joe Mercola, we had a rather large influx of patients recently, and um, he's doing another article on me that's coming out August 11th. The last one generated a quarter million people, so this one's probably going to be about the same, maybe bigger. And so in response to that, we are putting out all these patient education videos and stuff that will be on the website. So if people are just curious about all this, um, they can go and get that. I always give away my book for free because I'm just so proud that I wrote a book and I'm not really into book sales. <laughs> so if anyone's listening to this and you want a book, just email my office and we'll send you a free copy. Uh, there's two of them, uh, Your Guide to Healthy Hormones, which is about hormones, and then there's the Kalish Method, which is more broad about the brain and the hormone systems and all that good stuff. So we can send you an e-copy of it or a, a hard copy if you're curious. You can just email. Um, it's... Uh, drkalish.com is the patient website, drkalish.com, and then the kalishinstitute.com is the practitioner training website. Is your video on adrenal fatigue that was on Marcola's site on your site that people can find? That was a good video. It's not yet. You know, that's a very good point. Um, if you go to Mercola and type in adrenals kalish, it'll pop up. Okay, good. Yeah, it's like a 45-minute interview, and um, – yeah, it, people love it. It's really quite amazing with the amount of interest it generated. Well, you do a really good job of explaining complex theories in terms that people can understand, and I think people really appreciate that because this stuff can be really complex, but you are, do a good job of distilling it down to make it accessible, so that's always a good thing. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show, Dan, Dr. Dan. Um, hey, I appreciate it. So... It we are going to have some great guests coming up. We have R.C. Vartarian talking about paleo and babies. And after that, we have the paleo mom talking about the autoimmune protocol and how to use it to lose weight and get, get your body back in shape. And then we have uh, Neely coming on from Paleo Plan soon after that. And she's going to talk about paleo carbs and how to use them. And then we're probably going to have Jimmy Moore on to talk about cholesterol after that. So stay tuned and make sure and leave us a review on iTunes. It's really easy. You just press review and leave us a review. It just takes five seconds. And that will really help us out to share this with your friends and family who want to get healthy. Do you have anything you want to say, Mary? Thanks a lot, Dan. I always love chatting with you. Thanks for coming on our show. Can't wait. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, well, hopefully everyone out there will watch your videos and get some good info. So thanks again, and uh, until next time. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.